Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Ann Hendershot is with us today. She's professor of sociology and director of the Veritas Center for Ethics in Public Life at Franciscan University. She's the author of many books, including The Politics of Deviance and Renewal, How a New Generation of Priests and Bishops Are Revitalizing the Church. Her new book, the Politics of Envy is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Hendershot. Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, let's begin with the subject of the book. You say that in some ways, envy is the worst of all the sins. Why is that? I believe in St. Cyprian, who said envy is the root of all evil. I see it as the root of everything bad that happens in our lives. I mean, there's those other sins that are awful, gluttony and all those others. But um, as Joseph Epstein says in his book, envy is the only one that is no fun for anyone. And it's true. You get no reward from envy. It just causes tremendous pain. And it brings tremendous pain to everyone who feels envy or who is the object of envy. And we don't even think of that, but it is true. Envy hurts everyone. I mean, it's like a two-sided knife that cuts both ways, because the object of the envy is often hurt by the person who is envying. I mean, I give examples of that throughout the book of crimes of envy, arson, murder, often murder is from envy. And we don't have to really wonder much about it. We just go back to the Bible, and the Bible is filled with stories of envy, beginning with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Joseph and his brothers. So I find it fascinating. But I guess the reason I wrote the book is because I see it so much today. (laughs) It was the primary season that drove me to write this book, the Democratic primary season, because it was like an envy (laughs) a thon. All they did was make a bid for envy, to envy rich people and take them down, the fat cats, the people who have too much, the people who didn't build that, as Elizabeth Warren said. And so I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, So I just felt like I had to write something about it. I'd been writing some articles about it. And I just thought that this deserved a book length treatment because I was seeing envy everywhere. So that's why I decided to write this. Right, Anne. It certainly is a timely subject. And I, I look at the young and I see that they are they are caught up in in envy, looking at what others have and and a lot of the issues, the economic issues that are hitting them pretty hard right now. And that one of the political turns that they've made is 
forward an appeal to socialism among yeah. the young, a mistrust of capitalism. And you go into this in, in the book when you talk about Marxism, and Marxism's great temptation is that it promises to make envy disappear from the world. And how does Marxism make envy go away from, uh, from this earthly existence? That's the big promise, the utopia, when there's nothing left to envy because we live in this utopian society of egalitarianism where we all give each other what the other needs and nobody has more than another. But you know that's nutty. That will never happen. We're not angels. There will always be things to envy. I mean, even when the Sandinistas marched into Managua, they took all the best houses for themselves. The generals did. They wanted the best. So it was always going to, I mean, you just have to read Animal Farm. You know that, you know, some animals are better than others and deserve more than others. It never happens. The politics of envy is always a toxic mix. And it always ends up with what we have today, the erection of guillotines here and there. I mean, you, I'm sure you read the story about Jeff Bezos' house having a guillotine on his front steps um, by an envious former employer employee who was angry at Jeff Bezos for making so much money. It's, so to me, the, the politics of envy always ends with the guillotine. And we see that in Marxism. We see it. We see it everywhere. I mean, I saw it even in the hearings for uh, Justice Barrett. Those hearings were filled with envy from the female senators. I published an article called Hell Hath No Fury, like a female Democratic senator scorned. And I take on Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, who pretty much told her that she should be sitting in that seat where Justice Barrett was sitting for the hearings. Um, she felt like she should be the one to be the justice. And that was just like, to me, that just screamed envy. She, she thinks she, was, she doesn't deserve this, that she deserves that. And that's what envy is. Envy is desiring something that someone else has and wanting to take it away from her. I mean, obviously, Klobuchar didn't vote for Amy Coney Barrett. She didn't want her to have that seat, but she wanted that seat. And that's really what envy is. It's different from jealousy. Jealousy doesn't bother me so much. I've experienced jealousy throughout my life when someone gets a a better book contract or a better job or whatever. We all have. We don't want to hurt the person who has that better job or that better contract. That would be envy. Envy is when you want to destroy the person who has the same desire as you or has something you want. And it doesn't even have to be a tangible thing. You want to take that person down. And that's uh, that's what I find so worrisome about envy. You know, with the other sins, you can you can work them off in certain ways. If, if you're suffering from wrath, you, you go to the gym and you hit the heavy bag for 20 minutes right. and you feel a little better. What can you do about envy? How, how do you how do you get over envy? Envy is a character thing, I think. And in order to get over envy, I think it, it takes a heroic attitude is what I say in the book, turning the other cheek. I think Christians have a better time with dealing with envy and they don't go there because they, serious faithful Christians, like many of your, your listeners and readers, they know what a sinful thing this is and that God doesn't reward that. I mean, you just have to read Dante, Tony Esselin's Dante, and Tony talks a lot about envy 
He's written articles about envy. He warns us what will happen to us in the inferno. I mean, the people who envy have their eyes sewn shut so that they can't, they're blinded to others' beauty or others' advantages. And so I think we should fear (laughs) being envious, but we also should strive to get beyond it. But it's much harder than you think. I, I use Renee Girard a lot in this book. Yeah. Um, and he's he's the best at sort of telling us about to become like Christ. You know, and, and I, it's hard for me to even say that because it's just so so difficult to be that. But that's really what he says. It's the only way that you can overcome envy. The others you can. I mean, you can go on a diet and not be gluttonous. There's other ways. But with envy, you really have to become like Christ. And Nobody does that better than Rene Girard and his, what he calls mimetic theory. And he's my inspiration for this book. I mean, I got inspiration from day to day, but his theory on mimetic desire, it helps instruct us why we become envious. And we become envious because we desire what others desire. We don't know that we want something until somebody else wants that something. And and that's very helpful when you're thinking about why you might be envious of someone and not someone else. And I just, I find him fascinating. I, I wish he were still around. He, he was a contributor to First Things in the past. And I know you've done some articles about him. I just think he's an amazing, amazing theorist and a, a very faithful Catholic. And all of his work is informed by his Catholicism and his faith in God. And I found him so helpful writing this book. You note that some theorists, not Gerard, but some theorists pose an evolutionary basis for envy. What is their evidence or what is their argument for that? Gerard does. He sees it it's, um, that evolutionary theory can coexist very well with theory of Christianity. In fact, Gerard, many of his chapters begin with quotes from Darwin. In fact, some have called him the, the Darwin of the social sciences, even though he's a faithful Christian. I believe there are some evolutionary origins of envy. And I'm a faithful Christian because yeah. in order to survive, you have to find a mate, procreate. And in order to do that, you look for the perfect mate. Uh, males look for as many women as they can to impregnate. To, from an evolutionary perspective, this isn't a Christian perspective, in order to keep their line going. Females look for the most successful male so that they will have a viable child. And so females are more jealous of more attractive women who have may have the advantage on them to getting that attractive mate. So I have a whole chapter on this. I find it fascinating because, you know, when you look at personal dads or any in the past when people did personal dads, Men always look for beautiful women, and women always look for handsome men. I always had my students do that in my marriage and family class. What do women look for in personal dads or when they present themselves online to on Match.com? They often will have code words for successful, tall. <laughs> That's important, too. But it, they're usually codes for successful. Women want a successful man in order to help offspring. And that's, that's evolutionary. Now, the sociologist in me would say, oh, that's socially constructed. Women just want, you know, they want to have successful and have money and all that. No, I don't think it's entirely socially constructed. I, I'm not that much of a sociologist to believe that it's completely socially conditioned. 
I think there is an evolutionary pull or a nature, a human nature pull to want to survive. And in order to survive, you might have to overcome others in order to get to survival. And you don't want to do that in an ugly way, but there is something to be said for that. The best people will procreate in that way. Darwin told us that. You know, you might find some of that evolutionary deep knowledge of the workings of envy in something you turn to at one point, and that is the fairy tales and how how envy functions there. Can you give us a good example of of a fairy tale at work? Yes, I did a whole chapter. I love fairy tales. And I've always told them to my children. I grew up with them. And I grew up with the real ones, the the Brothers Grimm from the originals. And the Cinderella story is probably the best example of this, of envy. I mean, everybody knows the Cinderella story. Poor Cinderella has to take care of her two ugly stepsisters. And they're very ugly. And they have very big feet. But of course, (laughs) she somehow, because of her goodness, finds a way to get to the ball and her ugly sisters don't want her to go to the ball, so they put all these cinders and, and things into the fireplace. And her mother says if she cleans it well enough, she can go to the ball. And she does because all the little mice help her. And she has a fairy godmother who helps her. But the ugly stepsisters are at the ball, and Cinderella shows up. They don't recognize her, but she leaves her shoe. We know the whole story. But in the original Grimm's, The ugly stepsisters want to be able to fit into that shoe as the prince comes to their house. And so they actually cut off their feet. They cut, I mean, they cut off their toes and their heels in order to fit into the glass slipper. And they're all bleeding all over the place. I remember (laughs) hearing that story when I was little. They're so evil because they just are so evil. And they're evil because of their envy. They were really envious of Cinderella's beauty and her goodness, her inner goodness. And that envy is punished. And at the end of that Cinderella story, each of those ugly stepsisters that were at the wedding on their way home from the wedding, birds peck out their eyes. So they're blinded just like Dante's penitence in in the Inferno. So in the Divine Comedy, you know, we, we know that story. They're in purgatory and they have their eyes sewn shut. But these ugly stepsisters are blinded. So it's you know, it's in the Bible, it's in fairy tales, it's throughout Shakespeare. I mean, anybody who knows Shakespeare, probably better than I do, I know several of the stories are envy. I mean, who is more envious than Iago? Nobody in in literature is more envious, except maybe Scar in The Lion King, but that's not really literature. But I love Shakespeare and his treatment of envy. And Rene Girard has a whole book called Theory, uh, Theater of Envy, and it's all about envy in Shakespeare. So if any of your listeners, if after they buy my book, of course, <laughs> would want to learn more about envy in Shakespeare, that I would highly recommend that book because it's just wonderful. There's nobody who is more destroyed by envy than Iago because he destroys so much else. Now, I don't know that he destroys himself. He's not, I mean, he doesn't seem to have any conscience. Right. Some people say he was a psychopath. I don't believe that. I just think he was envious. He was envious of Cassio. In fact, at one point, he says in the play, his beauty doth make me ugly. I mean, Hmm. there's nothing better than an example of envy where someone else's beauty makes you feel ugly, which is so sad. Instead of looking at someone with admiration, how beautiful that person is. 
and I don't know, I, <laughs> I can't identify with that at all. Because when, when I see someone who's very beautiful, I think, how oh, wonderful for that person. But I also think it must be hard for them, too. Because it is, <laughs> you know, it really is. It can be a burden. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it can be. Having yeah. things that people envy can be difficult because people can be very mean to people who are very beautiful. I was a, a counselor for many years before I went back to become a sociologist. And you'd be surprised that people suffer who are very beautiful. And I know that sounds ridiculous to some of your listeners, but it is. It's a, it's a burden sometimes. It's easier to get older for some, I yeah. think. So, yeah, Shakespeare and, and the narratives of that Envy chapter was my favorite chapter because uh, there's so many fairy tales. And, you know, people are interested in these fairy tales. Um, in 2015, I went to an exhibit in the Hudson River Museum in New York, and they had a, an exhibit of Envy. And it was titled Envy, One Sin, Seven Stories. And it was an exhibit of different fairy tales depicted. Snow White was there, you know, the who's the fairest of them all kind of story. I mean, that's all about envy. She was envious of the, the lovely Snow White, had to poison her with an apple. So I think these are very useful to teach to children. You don't have to talk about the bloody feet. And they're sanitized now, which I, I, I have mixed feelings about. I still have my old Grimsbra <laughs> and I tell my grandchildren. I don't know if my children are thrilled with that, but I think they're very effective. And Bible mm -hmm. stories are probably the best way to teach children about envy. Cain and Abel's story is really important. I mean, Abel was more pleasing to God for several reasons, and Cain just couldn't deal with it. He just couldn't bear it. And so he had to, instead of trying to make a better sacrifice, he had to destroy his own brother. And that just continued. I don't want to set things off. Adam and Eve had their own problems with envy, wanting to be like God. Now, we could move up in chapter three to a more recent figure whom you highlight, who became important to the sociologists in the 1950s, the so-called other-directed man. Who, who was that man and what's his relation to envy? You know, if I had to write that chapter over, I might have said it was even in the 30s and 40s. With the advent of advertising and consumer culture, the other directed man and woman felt like they had to have more. That whole idea of conspicuous consumption. I, 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 I really love sociology and I'm glad I became a sociologist because I was sort of drawn to it because of that whole idea of David Raisman's book on the other directed man. In fact, I even quote you in that chapter. Because um, <laughs> you were talking about the dumbest generation. Yeah. Um, I love that book, actually. Thank you. Um, but it was kind of cruel, kind of cruel, yeah. um, but true in a lot of ways. But the, the 1950s was especially, his book was called The Lonely Crowd, and he wrote it with two other sociologists. And it was a study in the changing character. And he wrote it in 1950, but I think it reflects the 40s as also having children, buying houses, having things. And people became more concerned about what others, they became other directed, what others thought of them rather than what God thought of them or what their families thought of them. It was more important to impress the neighbors, the colleagues, the, the workers that you worked with. And so I think that's why I, I find that 
that period sort of a, the start of real envy. Instead of cooking for your family, this new idea of cooking fancy stuff, the joy of cooking instead of the Boston cookbook. You know, the Boston cookbook is something my mother used many years ago, and it was just kind of solid, nothing fancy. But then the joy of cooking came out, and it was, you know, and then the silver palette was later, you know, fancy stuff to impress, cook to impress. That helps explain, I think, this growth of envy. And then I think the growth of envy has just continued unabated. And I see it in in communities like the incel community, such in, envy. I'm sure you've heard of the incel community, but some people haven't. It's, incel stands for involuntary celibate. They're males who can't seem to get a girlfriend, and they're angry, and they're angry at men they call chads because they can't get the Stacys, you know, they're, they're just angry. And some of them have banded together and have done horrible things. There's, I call them the ultimate other directed individuals. I mean, they have been known to kill people. Alec Nassian killed 10 people and injured 16 in, in Toronto. He wrote a Facebook message saying the incel revolution has begun. He's just a bitter, angry young man because he can't get a girl girlfriend. Now, instead of trying to find a way to get a girlfriend, they're just angry and lashing out out of their envy because of those chads that have all the nice girlfriends. You know, there's, there's, I, I give at least six or seven examples. Elliot Roger at, in Isla Vista, California, stabbed his roommates, and then he went and drove to a sorority house and killed female students and wounding 14 more. And he identified himself as an incel, involuntary celibate. I see right. that as envy. Of course, I see envy everywhere. I see envy in this election we're having right now. I think there's tremendous envy towards President Trump. And I think they think that if we could just get rid of President Trump, everyone would be happy and the whole world would be good. But that's what right. Renee Sherrard told us. There's going to be a scapegoat all the time. And Donald Trump has become the scapegoat for unhappy people right now who think that if we could just get rid of him, all would be well. And it's just not true. But I guess I see envy where others may not. The book is The Politics of Envy by Anne Hendershot. Uh, thank you, Anne, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.